0: Welcome to Sibyline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely, and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe, and share.
1: So, hello, and welcome to Sibyline's uh, latest podcast. And to no one's surprise at all, we'll be talking further about COVID 19. But what we want to do today is kind of look beyond the immediate effects of the virus, its spread, and the tactical issues we're all involved with, and look further over the hill at what we're going to see, hopefully after things start to change, certainly in Western Europe and the US, you know, we, we believe at this time most likely over the summer. So what will the world look like, I guess, towards the end of this year, into 2021, is the key topic we want to address. So with me, I've got Ed Johnson, Amy Reynolds, who are the uh, manager and deputy manager of our analytical insight team based in London? So that is our core team of analysts who are looking at issues around the world all the time. So Ed and Amy, welcome. Obviously, thank you for taking time out when it's uh, particularly busy for everyone. You know, we've had our own excitements sort of going back and working from home, working remotely, as so many uh, listeners would have done. So um, you know, I really do appreciate that. And I guess we want to talk about the scenarios we're seeing for the future and some of the concerns that we have. So. What I'm particularly focused on ourselves you know, is whether this will be a V-shaped, a U-shaped or an L-shaped recovery. I think that's the, the big shorthand effectively in terms of how we see things go. So to explain briefly for those who haven't seen our scenario analysis, um, the V-shaped recovery is a steep decline in economic output and activity, hopefully with a short disruptive period and then rapid recovery back to where we were and the world continues more or less as usual uh, with this being a blip in the trajectory. The U-shaped recovery is a longer period of, effectively, of depressed activity. I think it's probably inevitable at this point. You know, we will see recessions in many, many major economies. But, uh, you know, whether or not that turns into protracted periods is is the key shape. So a U-shaped recovery is our middle scenario where you see longer-term disruption caused by the virus and the secondary consequences of dealing with that and then the recovery. Again, back to where you were, but taking longer, possibly from a lower level, And the final scenario, which is the more sort of disastrous one, is the L-shaped recovery, which is uh, really, you know, um, if you imagine more of an L on its side, you know, a decline down rapidly and then a long period um, of depressed activity. And obviously that can have some fundamental changes. That's just the economic side. But obviously some of the things we want to address today are, you know, what other things could change, what political relationships could change, whether the virus will bring further existing tensions to the fore and what those sorts of things are. And for those of you who've looked at our annual forecast, you know, we had a number of things in there that were causing us concern. And so the question I want to ask Ed and Amy is how will those things change? You know, will things accelerate? Will things recede? You know, and the final thing really is patterns of working, patterns of life after the dust settles. So, Amy, I guess I want to start with you and just sort of ask about those scenarios because you originated those a number of weeks ago now. Congratulations, because they have stood the test of time, I think, very well. But how are you seeing it change? So I think our last report. A week or two ago, kind of updated the probability to a V-shaped type, short and sharp, if you like, down to about five percent. Um, I think we were 55% on the protracted U shape, and the remainder was on that sort of long L shape recovery. But I mean, how do you see that changing, and what are the key points you're looking at?
2: Thanks, Justin. So I think, as you say, yeah, the the, the potential for a kind of V-shaped quicker recovery is is declining, sort of day by day at the moment. But I think our base case of a sort of U-shaped scenario does still stand. Ultimately, the longer term sort of economic fundamentals, you know, aren't really being affected by this. A lot of what we're seeing in the markets is, is based on sentiments. And this is supported by the kind of largely successful containment efforts that we've seen in China and now elsewhere in East Asia as well. So, yes, we are going to see, we are seeing extensive disruption on both supply side and demand side that will reduce overall economic activity for 2020 you know without a doubt and and the widespread business insecurity that we're seeing as well already resulting in major staff cuts is likely to trigger recessions but but when it is contained you know we will see a resumption in business activity as we already are in, you know in some of the economies that have been hit we will see resumption in travel and in supply chains and, and I think as it stands, we, we still see that this is more likely before the end of the year.
1: Yeah, thanks, Amy. I think that's a really interesting point, that economic activity is up to about, what, 80% of pre-virus levels in, in much of China. And I guess you know the period there of particularly tight restraints was, what, perhaps six to eight weeks, and activity was resuming after about six, I think, wasn't it? And uh, obviously, we've seen Singapore had a particular case where they tracked down an immense sort of amount of police work, I guess, including the military there to track down case by case and sort of contain and limit each individual case. And, you know, even Korea doing very well other seeing clusters. Um, you know, do we have this concern? Obviously we talk about the disease coming through in waves. It's certainly something I think we've seen in the last few days. And I think this is a trigger for me about whether we see, you know, a sort of short U or almost what we might call a W shape of resumed activity going back and uh, maybe eventually a squiggle. I'm not sure if that will catch on, but you heard it here first. Um, but a sort of squiggle shape where there's waves coming through and it depresses activity again, and then it resumes. It's depressed again. Um, so I mean, what's the latest we're seeing from Asia on that? The reinfections that might be occurring.
2: Yeah, we we certainly are seeing this to some extent. I think we in recent days we've seen kind of secondary waves in places like Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, um, even parts of China as well, of course that had sort of largely contained sort of domestic spread before. You know, in Hong Kong, when the situation um, sort of worsened in Europe, a lot of the expats who were were staying over here sort of fled backwards to Hong Kong and this brought with it another kind of wave of cases. In response to this, we've seen kind of regional governments sort of tighten their their sort of travel restrictions for, for arrivals. So we've seen some pretty stringent quarantines put in place. So I think that will kind of mitigate the sort of uh, reinfection, re-imported cases to some extent. I do think, you know, in, in China in particular, I think they, they've, they've kind of locked down pretty effectively. And I don't think, you know, while we might see a kind of a, a low level uh, squiggle scenario, as you, as you put it, I, I think it is sort of fair to say that we are likely to be past the peak in, in China in particular.
1: Yeah, I think that's interesting because the cases, I mean, I think there's a lot of coverage. and Of course, there was an obsession, I think, in the UK in particular with reinfection rates and the desire in this country, perhaps unlike others, to almost try and go for herd immunity from the start. But obviously we saw that would cause over a quarter of a million casualties in a couple of weeks, um, which was ultimately deemed probably not to be worth it you know, which I wholeheartedly personally agree with, I think, as we all do. So, you know, but it poses this challenge of of reinfection. But looking at the number of cases in China, you know, they are quite small. I guess if they were then to suddenly explode, it would be be very significant. So I suspect that's one of the triggers the team's looking at over the next couple of weeks. Taking that a bit further, you mentioned quarantines and restrictions. Is one of the long-term consequences of this, Ed, likely to be the international travel the way we knew it isn't going to be the same because people won't be sending sales missions to China or Korea or Vietnam you know looking at markets or suppliers because actually they'll have to do 14 days isolation when they arrive in the country potentially for a protracted period so is this going to drive much more reliance on, on local partners and what sort of what sort of challenges do we think that might sort of pose to businesses?
0: I mean, I think it's it's very true that that um, supply chains, as we we know them, are probably going to change. Um, current corporate travel um, and yeah, business travel, which is estimated to have taken a, an eight hundred and twenty billion dollar hit as a result of this this crisis, is probably not going to be the same again either. Yeah, that's in part due to contracting uh, corporate budgets, but also if we found a way around uh, around the virus and, and travel restrictions to do business, people will. Naturally, continue to do that, given that it's cheaper, uh, greener, which is also an important consideration, I guess these days, and, and just as effective. But I guess you know, the, to your point regarding supply chains and you know finding developing local partners. That the challenges around that is that uh, you know we're still is the, is the uncoupling from uh, global supply chains that we have, which we're already seeing coming under strain as as, as political geopolitical tensions increase around the world uh, across the fault lines. Those uh, supply chains were already becoming increasingly sensitive, particularly in, in in the Gulf, if we remember earlier this year there was a um, slight escalation of tensions around uh, around Iran. It seems a long way away now, but yet yeah, another instant where you know, those global supply chains were challenged and and I think you' know, forcing companies uh, both in in Western Europe and North America to uh, fundamentally reevaluate how they are going to ensure the continuity of supply and continuity of operations
1: yeah, so as you say, lots of other things going on under the surface and you know, I certainly think you touched on a number of the changes that have been bothering me that um, we haven't really discussed, but um, it is that idea of restrictions on travel. so working around that with local partners, but then that talks about things like corruption. How can you trust those partners? Your delegated authority? How do you do the due diligence? And as we know, coming into this, one of the big things that we thought would be a theme this year was the um, sort of environmental due diligence aspects that was going to start coming in, replacing perhaps the corruption um, focus that existed 10-15 years ago and that ethics piece widening much more to say okay that the person you're looking at doing business with hasn't got any bodies buried in their past but they do own the most polluting power stations uh, in the country you're looking at as one of their other business ventures you know and that is something that's going to expose you to activism and external pressure. I guess all of us have been very struck by the footage of Venice with very clean canals Uh, The footage of pollution over Italy and the Po Valley, uh, you know, all gone, pictures of pollution over China and air quality, particularly nitrogen oxide, you know, much improved by the lack of traffic, obviously the lack of aviation traffic. And I do feel this is obviously going to be a big thing. So, I mean, Amy, do you see a strong resurgence in the environmental movement on the back of this, given all those trends? Or do you see that actually we will more or less go back to business as usual and this won't have as much of a lasting impact as we might believe? looking at it at this moment in time
2: yeah i I, I certainly think that we we will see a resurgence in that type of activism um i think that that sort of movement is part of a a longer term shift in social consciousness really and when global travel and and manufacturing restarts as it certainly will um I i would definitely expect this type of activism to resume as well and i think you know if anything perhaps the environmental improvements that we've seen in recent weeks you know as you mentioned. I don't think I've ever seen so many sort of blue sky pictures um, of Hong Kong in my life, and you know, yeah, dolphins apparently back in the Venetian canals. These kind of improvements that we've seen in in what's you know really been a, a relatively short period of time will kind of give extra impetus to this movement as as it demonstrates what can be achieved.
1: Right. So in our view, I mean, there is this direct relationship between the length of the recovery almost as having more and more an impact and and adding more and more momentum to that existing movement, which obviously is not in. Uh, headlines at all um, at present um, for you know unsurprising reasons so that's a very interesting aspect and um, my own suspicion and and, you know Ed you know I'd love to hear your view but my own suspicion is that canny companies will recognize what they're gaining by working from home you know by restricting travel and that will have even more of a feedback um, effects on what's going on I mean do you agree or disagree?
0: Yeah absolutely I I couldn't agree more I think that the impact that it has on, on working culture and and shifting the way in which people are working is, is, is it will be something that's quite hard to go back from. And people will find, op- companies will see efficiencies and find opportunities, particularly if, you know, as is now increasingly likely, there is a, a sort of wider global economic downturn will find companies will find opportunities to cut overheads cut costs and if that involves you know downsizing physical assets and encouraging uh, pushing meetings online and virtually I think that's more and more likely Um, so we see that kind of corporate shift I think um, go hand in hand with the the sort of popularization of environmental activism and the the desire to be perceived as an increasingly green company.
1: Yeah and so it's sort of kind of there's a lot of forces feeding back here to me I guess I think you know this is a catalyst for some of the trends we've seen slowly emerging, like the work from home. I think was something that did exist, but it was not the mainstream in the way it's having to be at the moment for a number of us. And I think you know I've spoken I lose count of the people I've spoken to in the last week who sort of said actually once I'm used to doing this, you know it's a strain. You know it's exciting for a week, it's a strain for two or three weeks, and after a month I'm fully adapted to it. I think you're all familiar with the Kubler-Ross curve of Of change, obviously, it's applied to grief, but it does apply to any sort of change. And there's kind of resistance, and then depression, and acceptance, and moving on at a higher level than before. And uh, I do think a lot of us would have come through that curve in in the sort of period of time we've had to. And so actually, I don't really want to go back to commuting with my uh, in the UK, my face in someone's armpit probably in the US, in a massive queue of traffic. Um, You know, actually, I quite like this. And in fact, I don't have to live in a congested, very expensive area anymore. And of course, employers, I guess, like it because. They don't have to pay very high salaries for people to live in expensive, congested areas and be upset about it. People can live where they want to live, live how they want to live, work how they want to work, and and actually, it's environmentally friendly. You know, um, and I guess there's a reason that Zoom is, uh, is adding quite a lot to its share price. And of course, Microsoft have also offered Teams to people for free during the crisis. And I think these sorts of things um, will also sort of really catalyse the change that might otherwise have been 20, twenty, thirty or so. And I guess one of those things we haven't touched on are things like automation because um, I think as one report very astutely put it, it's quite hard to work from home if you work in a factory. And certainly some of the problems we've seen with food supply and things have been because the manufacturing plants just haven't had people turn up to work. I mean, does do we see a future coming more quickly now where automation becomes seen as actually more reliable because it doesn't go sick? You don't have a real pressure on delivery drivers to do long hours if it was actually robot delivery cars. I mean, do we see, I guess it would have to go on a long while, but do we see a situation where automation actually gets driven forward because resistance to that change kind of gets passed up and um, we
0: rely more on automation and machines. Automation, is, you know, as far as I was sort of, when you listening to what you are saying and what I was sort of thinking about, it was you know, automation is was happening, is happening. Um, we are moving towards that uh, as a society and as a workforce. So, you know, I think this, these kind of crises, when they come along, they, they accelerate currents that were already... There within um, within society, um, and in particular, you know, with automa- automation, it, it will push it forward because, as I you know, keep going back to it, if, if companies find a way in which they can save, if they can be more efficient, reduce human error, um, reduce overheads, they will they will do it. And, and it's crises like this that will, will trigger them to do that, to put that investment into um, greater resilience, which I think is automation. Yeah, and I think we've seen it actually with the bits of food distribution. Obviously, taking the
1: Acado um, model here in the UK. And of course, Amazon as well, you know, use of automation in in, uh, in distribution and the efforts have been going into all, um, so automation, particularly for the last mile. And Amy, I do understand in Asia that it was demand for last mile services that's currently very high as part of the recovery. Um, and of course, you know, we're starting to see it in the UK with people booking deliveries and so on um, as much as they are doing. So, you know, I am, I'm very, um, very interested to see how that set of themes um develops. But I guess to bring it back to the slightly more operational, um, we talked about other themes that we had on mind for 2020, um, the environment being one, and I think we've, we've covered that um, and the burden that we'll see in that area. But what about some of the other geostrategic themes? China and the US was one of the big ones we were looking at. I think also the role of Russia in the world is something we've been tracking for a number of years. And of course, they're not the only player that you know, this exists on the world stage. You know, is this world crisis going to strengthen or weaken bonds? Let's think about the EU and things like that. Is this, a, you know, is this a challenge that's going to make people pull together better, or is this a challenge that means that, that international order that we've seen under pressure for years
0: will further break down, and uh, you know, we enter a more dangerous period of confrontation? I think, rather regrettably, I have to take the more pessimistic uh, side of that uh, answer, which is that yeah, the, the the international order, you know, the very end of the unipolar moment that we had. That is very much in the rearview mirror and whether we accept it or not, countries like Russia, to some degree Turkey as well, uh, Iran, China, even India increasingly are asserting themselves as regional powers um, and in China's case very much as the sort of rising strategic force globally with you know the u s and the eu very much um, increasingly at odds so you look at um, diversion and regulation approach to the environment environmental issues and these sorts of things and um, I think we are seeing that you know the, the tensions around where these blocks uh, um, sort of interact the sort of fault lines as it were you know the, these issues will be will be played out there and, and as the uh, as these geopolitical blocks kind of rub up against each other
2: yeah i I completely agree with ed in this regard i unfortunately i don 't think that the outbreak is going to help to kind of Dampen geopolitical rivalries. As such, I think you know almost to the contrary, it seems to be just sort of becoming another arena in which they can play out. So we've seen this very much with the U.S. Um, with the U.S. and China. We've seen sort of rhetorical sniping back and forth there, with with you know uh, Trump referring to it as the China virus, and and China expressing their sort of extreme dissatisfaction at this, and and also the race for a vaccine between the two countries that's sort of getting underway. Um, we've seen a similar thing with South Korea and Japan. They moved straight to impose um, travel restrictions on each other, despite not having yet put them on China at the time. Uh, you know, sort of flaunting um, WHO advice in this regard. So, yeah, I think certainly we've seen seen the rivalries playing out um, in terms of the virus.
0: I think. Yeah, well, it's, it's, oh, go sorry, ahead. Justin. Um, I just no, think it's really really interesting to see how China is now, as, as its own crisis sort of uh, ebbs. For now uh, how it's, it's responding uh, by sending masks and doctors to Italy to assist with their, their crisis. You know, this kind of good PR, as it were. Um, and one can only imagine that there will be more Chinese efforts to sort of present uh, themselves in a positive light through, through assistance uh, when the virus, you know, should the virus kind of take hold over Africa and Latin America, where China already has quite substantial strategic interests and relationships with uh, numerous governments. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's kind of an, an interesting area to watch.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I think, I think we're definitely sort of seeing Beijing looking to sort of carve an opportunity for themselves out of this situation, especially, as you say, now that the outbreak is sort of domestically pretty much under control. I think China will, and kind of is, looking to position itself, as you say, as sort of a global benefactor. Um, you know, not only with the aim of sort of engendering goodwill with countries whom, whom it can then establish uh, trade and investment relations down the line, but also, again, as part of this sort of broader strategic rivalry with the U.S., so I think you know, being the being the one to give out the most assistance, being the first one to come up with a with a vaccine, sort of demonstrates this pretty neatly.
1: Mm. I mean, is this China's Marshall Plan? Mm,
2: maybe, <laughs> maybe.
1: Yeah, I doubt it will be on the scale. I mean, I, we certainly see headlines saying actually China's a bit reluctant to be the world savior on this. But uh, I think it, the, the Chinese character in this is still maybe a little bit less. Um, um, I can't find the right word for it, but the Chinese character on this is maybe a little bit less um, opportunistic in this regard than perhaps you could argue that the Marshall Plan was, because that was maybe more focused on a more clear um, adversary, more potential for an adversary, as well as the rebuilding of, of Europe. And I do think China's just a bit less used to being out in some of the world to that extent. I don't know if that's a, a fair characterization or not, Amy.
2: Yeah, I think I think that is fair to some extent. Um, they're, you know, famously sort of non-interventionist um, in terms of their official policy because they don't like others being interventionist towards towards them. But I think the kind of circumstances is just sort of presenting too great an opportunity to miss. Really, for China, it ties in with their sort of longer-term Belt and Road Initiative goals and and sort of establishing these strategic relationships with countries around the world. And and if and if this sort of outbreak can present an opportunity to help them effectively do that even better then I you know I I don't think they'll be too reluctant to take it.
1: No and it it is a I mean I was very struck by that view of you know China's coming to help you and um, you know the compare and and contrast with where's our traditional ally of Western Europe um, you know since 1940s and in the shape of the United States you know I think that was quite a marked quite a marked uh, difference. Of course even within the EU and maybe we've not talked enough about this but even within the EU you saw the restriction potentially on medical movement, the supplies from Germany. I think that was rapidly changed, but certainly some Italians I spoke to said, well, we won't forget that in our hour of need, the Germans closed the border and, and restricted selling masks to us. Now, that's probably being overstated at the moment. And of course, there's a lot of detail in the media that may not be completely true, and it's quite hard to check everything, obviously, we see coming through. But do you see further tensions within the EU? Will it make them pull closer together? Or do you see this as the challenge that is sort the one challenge too far I mean we, we almost say every straw is going to break that camel's back but uh, it's endured so far so I mean is this is this what breaks the EU or is it is this what brings it together especially with brexit
0: I guess it's it's uh, as, as with all these things, the answer is probably somewhere in between. You know, I, the EU is is uh, is quite resilient. I, I think it's very easy to look at all these challenges it's facing and, and sort of promote it. So you know, its reports of its demise are, are largely exaggerated. Um, you know, we do see challenges continuing uh, on the southern border, the situation with with the migrants in Turkey, uh, and the those challenges around that. But in regards to intra-bloc relations. I think the, the, the way in which kind of the major countries have responded to this and how the virus has sort of over, overwhelmed them, to some degree will push for greater cooperation, but at the same time, we'll, you know, we've seen essentially unilateral responses.
1: Yeah, and that's something that really struck me in contrast to China, which might deal with, obviously, with even bigger population, but where you have provinces, but of course, you know, the central government has a writ. And of course, the United States, where I was saying, well, whilst a lot of things are being done at the state level, The federal government can mandate certain things and it means that supplies will flow. And of course, in Europe, we've seen in the last week borders going up and down. Uh, The initial response to the crisis in northern Italy was for countries, I think around 2nd of March, still saying they saw no reason to close any of their borders or restrict anything with Italy uh, whatsoever. And that was only two, three weeks ago that they were saying there was absolutely no requirement for that. And it was unthinkable that they would do that. Um, And then, of course, borders were up, um, borders came down again, but the Schengen border has now gone up, the UK and Ireland currently still within that, but of course, could be pushed out of that if necessary. So, you know, I think we've just seen that dynamic within the bloc already compared to the US. So I guess our own view, um, collectively from the sound of it, is that it's harder for the EU to respond because it is ultimately um, a collection of countries with, with national interests and strategic interests. I mean, does this further fuel, though, contests almost between the EU and the US? And we've seen the Germans, for example, stop the US takeover of one of their pharmaceutical companies in this period. Do we see more suspicion as a result of these events? Or can that be undone and return to business as
0: usual? I mean, I think business as usual, even before the, the virus was one of a growing uh, confrontation or confrontation, but uh, growing tensions between uh, the US and, and the EU in terms of trade. The Trump administration has already imposed Relatively uh, stringent tariffs on, on on a range of EU products, um, and Trump openly makes no secret of uh, his sort of disdain and disregard for the way in which the EU approaches trade, which he views as, as deeply unfair. Um, you know, the future of EU-US uh, relations, I guess, depends very much on on the outcome in in October. Oh, sorry, November. Um, another um, Trump term would would probably take us down a direction of travel. Uh, might be quite hard to reverse however you know uh, most likely biden um uh, for a presidency it would would, uh, would be another opportunity to uh walk back some of the tariffs walk back some of the rhetoric and 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 sort of re-engage um in, in terms of cooperation
1: so i mean that's an interesting one i mean we talked about china and eu and china latin america and africa we've talked about eu us and i guess it's time to talk about us china and ed thanks for those trigger points as you say um, a continuation of the current Trump-more-adversarial relationship, you definitely seen as a competition for advantage versus you know, Biden's probable course being more conciliatory. Are the Chinese interested in that? Um, or do you think this has been the thing that has forced China to be less dependent on the outside world and vice versa? And actually, this increases that trend of almost two to three major power blocks in the world.
2: Yeah, I think I think with regard to China and, and the US in particular, I think, you know, kind of as I've alluded to, this is sort of becoming another arena for the two superpowers. So they've already sort of become these these two blocks and you know, we've seen these tensions manifesting in so many areas in recent months and, and even years, so from trade to technology. Um, and and this kind of COVID dispute slash COVID diplomacy, I guess, is is now just becoming another sort of facet. So yeah, we're seeing them we're seeing them both race to find a vaccine. I think it was very timely that the day after the U.S. I think announced that one of one of their um, potential solutions is is going to be heading towards the trial stage, China came back and announced you know the exact same thing for theirs. So yeah, I think, I think it's certainly going to be another area in which in which this rivalry continues to play out. I don't think it's, it's hugely going to make things better. I don't think it's going to make things a lot worse either. But I think it's just an, another arena for that sort of continued, sort of increasingly overt rivalry to take place.
1: And one of the trends we've been looking at was localization of particularly US business in China. Um, and I know a number of businesses trying to operate there that were putting a much more Chinese face on it. I and mean, it was much more a Chinese local business where they can make it that. Are they going to be able to resume that business or has this now deteriorated to the point that actually trying to go back in and rebuild those businesses will be difficult and actually the domestic business in China will, will have effectively taken over? And I guess I've added as a rider that we'd seen that trend happening a little bit already. I mean, has that been accelerated? Or again, do you think US businesses can go back to China as a market in the way that they were doing, say, a year ago?
2: I I think that should be I think it should be viable that 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 should certainly return Um, once this virus is kind of more effectively contained and and sort of things go back to business as usual in that regard. I think um, U.S. businesses operating in China will certainly continue to face challenges, um, a lot of which are are born out of China's own sort of industrial um, domestic priorities. So being disadvantaged by by state subsidies, um, being subject to, to forced technology transfers and, and intellectual property infringements. You know, I think despite pledges made during the phase one trade deal, you know, these things are certainly going to remain a feature um, of the operating environment. And, and I don't think that will change significantly because of the outbreak for either for better or for worse. Um, I think a trend that I think we've kind of alluded to already as well, that we might continue to see um, this, this sort of, uh, the outbreak, I suppose, Sort of shows the the vulnerability of businesses that are kind of over concentrated in china in terms of their manufacturing and their supply chains um, and while this might not necessarily lead to a push for sort of repatriation or relocalization i think it, it might it might lead to a push for more general diversification um, which is potentially more likely to benefit other low-cost manufacturing hubs potentially in the region so vietnam cambodia bangladesh
1: but of course, you know, as companies try and rebuild, they've taken this hit, they've had to economise. I mean, actually, if you are sort of saying you need to spend more and have, you know, you're going to have to build out resilience now at even more cost when you're trying to, to struggle to, to grow and deliver. So I guess the message must be that this is a process you need to start now um, to be positioned to, to capitalise as things pick up rather than, you know, waiting down the line and then trying to change. And I, I guess, especially if we believe in the W or the squirrel shape of potential local close downs being a fact of life least into the vaccines along, and we're told 12 to 18 months, you know, appears to be the current trend that you can expect restrictions and opening back up and so on. And I guess coupled with that localization trend, that's going to be, that's going to be quite a challenge. So I guess with that, we ought to pick up on the other big issues we've not talked about. And Ed, we had discussed Russia uh, in brief earlier and um, Iran, Iraq. And of course, we all remember, you know, in January, we all thought this was going to be the year of the Gulf War. And of course, who remembers that? You know, and someone put it to me that, you know, a week is a year in COVID time. Uh, even more than it is in cyber time. So what else do we see happening in these areas? And obviously the US is changing its stance in Iraq a little bit. We've seen the withdrawal from Q West and other places. What, what's going to happen in the Gulf? And beyond that, obviously oil relationships, how does that affect Russia and its position in the world? And should we worry about these low oil prices at the moment and the effect that's going to have on these states that are very
0: vulnerable to that sort of pressure? I think the the, the oil price uh, issue is certainly um one of, of, of great interest um, you know it was clearly an attempt by by russia to well, the trigger in triggering the the, the confrontation with opec and, and saudi was uh, very much an attempt by russia to undermine uh, u.s shale production um which has a much higher overheads um and it figured would be more negatively impacted, and was, was sort of tired of production cuts benefiting u.s manufacturers um and it's a sort of double-edged sword and in, in, yes prices have fallen but um, U.S. shale production can be easily ramped up and ramped down um, so they can exit the market and, and return when when prices have risen. So in, in terms of Russia's longer term strategy with that, I'd be interested to see where that goes. Internally, uh, there's a lot of a lot of challenges going on, a lot of movement behind the scenes. We've obviously seen uh, the um, sort of constitutional amendments that have been uh, proposed and, and likely to be passed that would potentially pave the way for Putin to remain in, in power for another two uh, two full presidential terms. You know, the timing of that and the sort of way in which it's been presented is, to me, uh, strikes me as very opportunistic. Um, with a bit of, everyone's distracted, no you know, mass gatherings are not allowed. You know, it, seem, it seems to me to be a, a very kind of, uh, a good moment for them to to bury the, the kind of, the bad news um, that, uh, you know, as, as expected, Putin's very much sticking around and will likely be front and centre. But yeah, with regards to wider developments in, in the Middle East, you know, I think the the, um, the tensions that existed will and came to the fore uh, earlier in the year at the beginning of the year will certainly persist, persist. and um, again the, the kind of u s response to that probably hinges on on November again in in terms of the different approach of between how to say exuberant um, style of Trump in terms of r- ramping up confrontation and then um, walking away from things, ignoring uh, his own red lines in that sense. And, you know, in comparison to how the sort of a democratic president would responded in, in, uh, in a different way. Would Biden try and re- revive the uh, the Iran nuclear deal, um, seek a rapprochement there? You know, these are all um, all sort of questions, I guess, associated with uh, with November. Mm.
1: And I guess one of the things when you mention Iran there is that potentially, I mean, Iran's got this domestic, uh, domestic issue. And I think there's two schools of thought that, that we've been considering, which is that first of all, does that drive more foreign adventurism You know, to try and take the population's mind off the initial um, mishandling of what was actually quite a severe crisis in Iran that we've gone to quite a high extent before it was noticed, so at best incompetence, um, you know, at worst deliberate lying to the population. And either way, I think that's something that has caused anger in Iran, and a place that was already seeing, um, seeing problems in terms of domestic order, despite obviously a fairly fearsome presence in the passage. So, That I think is a very interesting trend, Um, but the alternative being that of course Iran just wants to keep a lid on things now to see what happens in November and probably calculating that there's a much higher chance of uh, going back to a more orderly situation in the region uh, under a change of president. Now I would add though that of course, in terms of causing I suppose dissent inside Iran, actually the period when the nuclear deal was on was much more effective than I think the period since it's been off because of course. When it's off, it's handing that adversarial ticket um, to the Iranian government to be able to say this is all America's fault and the EU's fault and Britain's fault and so on. But I think, of course, when that's removed and things are still not good and the economy is suffering, then, you know, it's harder for them to blame an outside, uh, outside power. So actually, uh, you know, from our own point of view, I think our collective judgment from a couple of years ago was actually that removing the deal, in a way, made it um, less likely that Iran would topple internally in some ways because it, it would rank the troops so I think that's one of the big trends I know I'm, I'm certainly paying a lot of attention to but you know I think Russia is the interesting one the issue of income I don't think from what you said to me Ed means that they're going to be under huge pressure in the short term for oil income but maybe in a year or so um, Russia will be starting to really struggle and you know we have seen a trend towards adventurism when in that sort of situation now we, we talk about the Baltic states and the threat to that I think obviously NATO it's fundamentally a guarantor there. So I guess as long as NATO is still credible and that's safe, but where else are you looking at where Russia might take advantage of the situation you know, if it had to, and again, if the pressure is on. So I guess as time goes and things get worse, where is it you're looking
0: at um, the longer this crisis goes on? I mean, aside from the, the sort of ongoing conflict in Ukraine, which you know, could be exploited um, again at any moment, although this is certainly no, by no means um, 2014, where there was more of a, widespread glow around that particular issue uh, that particular conflict i would say yeah the, the one that speaks to my mind most loudly is um is belarus which by and large is already an extension of russia's western military district um, but we've seen over the course of the past probably 18 months a bit of a increase in, in sort of t- an increase in the testiness of the relationship between putin and lukashenko um, with 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 Scott from making overtures to the EU, uh, repairing those kind of relations there, and re- re- rebuffing some of Russia's sort of um, advances in terms of yeah. economic inter- greater economic integration. There was an oil uh, dis- dispute over oil um, tariffs and, and pricing, essentially. Uh, Russia cancelled the um, freeze on on export duty, which cost, would then cost Belarus uh, significantly. So I would I would think you know whilst I don't believe that uh, the so called Belarusian scenario is a solution for um, Putin's kind of transition after twenty twenty four, I believe that it still remains a, a strategic um, objective or a strategic, strategic um, point of interest for Russia in terms of you know both the Baltics and um, with uh, with regards to NATO more widely for Russia. So I would I would certainly see that as as a viable Um, Option for um, Russian adventurers.
1: Yeah, thank you, Ed. And I think that brings us full circle in some ways when thinking about this crisis. Because to me, at least the states that are most vulnerable to collapse during this, that have maybe the weakest systems, the poorest economies, um, poor health systems, or just poor ability to deal with a public crisis disorder where you might see um, a breakdown in services or law and order. I guess those are the countries where there'll be something of a competition to provide support to some extent I and mean, people may be positioning for long-term goals. I mean, Amy, do you agree with that or have I over-exaggerated?
2: No, I think that's certainly, you know, a risk that we are seeing. I think, um, you know, in terms of sort of unrest triggered by this outbreak, I think in countries where, you know, anti-government sentiment has already been high, in some cases approaching boiling point among certain factions of the population, um, you know, this is this is definitely a significant risk. So, you know, India is a possible example here with the anti-CAA protests of recent months, um, as well as, you know, perhaps Chile, Colombia. I guess at the same time, though, you have to consider that the public anxiety about the outbreak and about the the virus, um, which is likely to only, you know, rise further in the coming days and weeks as more cases and more fatalities are confirmed, um, will kind of act as a mitigating factor to some extent on on widespread outbreaks, widespread outbreaks of unrest, um, and, and large public gatherings and things like this. In addition, you know, as, as Ed mentioned, with regard to, to Russia, in some cases, gatherings have been banned altogether, you know, citing public health concerns. But you know, what we might see instead, I suppose, and and are already seeing um, in some countries, I think, in, in Latin America and Brazil, for example, in recent days, are more kind of, passive acts of protest. So things like um, you know, scheduled um, noise creation, banging, banging of pots and pans um, in, in people's homes as an expression of discontent. And then again, yes, there's sort of a, an element of opportunist crime we've seen elsewhere. I think there have been some cases in the Philippines in recent days um, of, of robberies and, and lootings and things like this as, as people start to panic and, and worry about potential food shortages. So it's certainly a, a lot of kind of Second degree impacts there to look at from a security perspective.
1: No, that is very interesting what you say about protests being maintained by other means. And it occurred to me while you were speaking that obviously at the moment we're looking with interest at France, where a permit system has been introduced for people going more than 50 metres, I think, from their property without a valid reason. And of course, France saw, I think, just over a week ago now, Gilets jaunes protests continuing in Paris, despite them asking people to stay at home and quarantining. And it, It struck me while you were talking that maybe there was a bit more in the public health concern to the reason why France uh, has imposed such restrictions compared to other countries, given the turmoil that's been going on there for months. That maybe there was an extra incentive there, which is to try and use this as an opportunity, maybe cynically uh, of me to think so, but use this as an opportunity to kind of break up those protests um, and take the momentum out of them. Um, I think especially once they've been seen to be taking place despite the virus. To be fair, also obviously a huge public health risk if they were to continue. So one could also argue they didn't have a choice. But I think that might explain why France has a level of control we're not seeing elsewhere in, in Europe. But I think those those wider trends you mentioned, very uh, very interesting indeed. And uh, particularly, as you say, the noisy protests. Um, I'm probably, I'm sure, online things, but of course, they're never quite the same. And uh, I'm not sure an online protest has ever changed a country, but I stand to be corrected if people want to let me know uh, about all the things I've obviously forgotten about. You touched on some wonderful other things there. India, South Asia, you know, Southeast Asia, we haven't talked enough about, but I can see a wave of governments, I guess, being under threat on the back of this. And uh, even in the, you know, if you think back in Britain's own example, if you view this as wartime, I mean, Churchill, the great wartime leader, the greatest Britain you know, of all time, as voted for by the British public, of course, lost the election uh, straight after the end of the war in Europe, even despite all that. And, you know, so I think we could see from the sound of it, Um, quite a degree of uh, popular change. And even when people have survived the virus, the political prices that we paid and policies uh, could change dramatically. And Ed, thank you for highlighting, of course, the the consequences of the US election. Um, So I guess to round off, and and obviously no one's got much time at the moment, so we've enjoyed keeping this quite short. Um, Tell me, I guess, the things that you are tracking at the moment, and give me one good thing that you think is going to come out of all of this. Um, because it can't just all be doom and gloom as uh, people keep telling me. Uh, but I think in some ways it's not. I mean, I think an acceleration of trend is both good and bad. I think it's going to pose challenges that we saw coming. But you know, what are you looking at and what, what's the good that will come out of this? You know, when the dust settles and we look back, we'll say, well, at least it improved something. So tell me what you're thinking.
0: Well, um, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think it represents an opportunity for individuals and businesses to reorient the way in which they, they carry out their operations, the way in which we uh, exist as a society potentially could change quite significantly. You know, I think there's a lot of opportunities around that um, in terms of um, making efficiencies and improving quality of life, as I think you, you touched on earlier, um, and I think that's a really interesting thing that I'm watching is it's, what are the kind of how does the social and societal effects of this, um, this period, how will that kind of bleed into the, the corporate world and corporate operations? I think you know, trying to map that and understand that, um, and see how businesses are going to change, and risks to businesses will change accordingly. Um, how that how that evolves, I think, is something I'm, I'm, I'm quite keen to to follow. Yeah, you're almost saying the the,
1: uh, the change from what we used to call the VUCA world to the. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Towards perhaps the uh, the very duca uh, world, the veruca world. Um, I'm coining it here, along with the squiggle theory. But you know, this sort of very uh, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. So if we thought we were busy as intelligence analysts, you know, a year ago, it sounds like we're going to be awfully busy after this, I'm trying to make sense of this, and with gains potentially harder to achieve. But Amy, what what do you see?
2: Yeah, so in terms of what we're tracking, I guess, you know, obviously the outbreak itself, the potential for reimportation of cases and, and second, second waves of cases in, in Asia where, you know, where a lot of countries have been successful in their containment efforts, um, as well as looking at some of these kind of secondary implications that we looked at, whether that's with regard to sort of government stability or, or increasing crime rates and, and outbreaks of unrest and things like this. In terms of potential upside, um, I don't, maybe, maybe it's overly optimistic of me, but something that I can envisage that we might see would be um, more resources dedicated to healthcare systems, public healthcare systems, and, and as general kind of measures, whether amongst governments or, you know, or private industry as well, to increase the preparedness uh, you know, of their infrastructure for further such pandemics. You know, realistically, this outbreak probably isn't a one-time deal and we can, we can kind of see from how it's been handled relatively well in some of the Asian countries that suffered badly from SARS. So Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, you know, even mainland China itself, that um, it is possible to kind of increase resilience and learn from previous mistakes. Um, and this is not just in terms of, of government response, but also, you know, public attitude as well. You know, this might serve to be sort of Europe's undoing to some extent. I know they've already had problems with breaking quarantines um, in Italy and, and, as we mentioned, France. So, whether that's, yeah, self isolation or, or mask wearing or general sanitization, you know, we might see kind of lessons, positive lessons taken in this regard as well.
1: Great. So, overall, you know, it's an accelerant of change, you know, a changed world, well, but a changed world well that was coming anyway. And maybe, obviously, like all things, we're going to take pain in the short term. Uh, transition and obviously an unprecedented situation but what we see afterwards to some extent was perhaps predictable and it's just happening faster than we would like in different ways to the ways we expected but ultimately if we sat there and looked at the world and said by 2030 we thought it would look like this that's probably still true it's just uh, the shocks in terms of how we're getting there seem to be the, the thing we're all looking at um, so I guess with that it's a great place to wind up uh, we've covered a wonderful range of things. Um, I'm looking forward to talking more widely about the Squirrel theory, W-shaped recoveries, the BRUCA world, and why Belarus matters. And I guess the, the interesting news for everyone is you know, we may never enjoy business class again, but ultimately, again, we will see a changed world. And uh, isn't that why we're all intelligence analysts? So thank you to those of you listening to the podcast today. Uh, thank you, obviously, very much to Amy and Ed for taking time out of a very hectic schedule. Uh, and the adaptation of working from home and running a team remotely that we're all going through. Um, I've really appreciated it. As ever, if you have any comments or thoughts, um, we'd love to hear about them. Do get back. We are busy with all sorts of things and uh, that often means we do have a perspective on the questions you may have. And if nothing else, it's always great to hear from you. And the more that we're dispersed, um, obviously we've lost those opportunities to get together uh, as much as we were used to in exchange ideas. So, you know, let's make sure we keep that momentum going through the time. But it's a bit harder to do that And I think we'll all benefit. Um, Thank you all very much indeed.
0: Thank you.
2: Thanks.